Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. Philip Terzian here, literary editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast, the Books and Arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week, I am previewing for you the contents of our summer reading issue. We have two special reading issues each year. We have a holiday reading issue around Christmas and a summer reading issue. And um, as you may have noticed, it's um, uh, early in the month of August. I apologize. We had a couple of longish stories in the magazine this summer, and I graciously deferred on uh, on running the summer reading issue. But thankfully, um, it is now here, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to um, share with you the contents of this week's issue. A, a happy combination, I hope, of subjects and authors, not necessarily for beach reading, just for reading in general. Our lead piece this week is by Patrick Allett, um, who is a a British-born historian of the United States who teaches at Emory, author of several um, uh, very good books. And the book that he's writing about this week is James Madison, A Life Reconsidered by Lynn Cheney. Um, This is, of course, Lynn Cheney, who is the wife of former Vice President Dick Cheney, but um, is a personage in her own right, especially in uh, scholarly circles. Uh, Lynn Cheney has a doctorate in English. She's a specialist on, I've always admired the fact she wrote her dissertation on Matthew Arnold, and of course she was, uh, she has written several books on American history, and uh, of course was um, chairman of the National Endowment for the Humanities at a decisive moment. And she has now written a widely praised and admired uh, life of James Madison, predicated to some degree on the argument that um, in the firmament of founders, from George Washington to Thomas Jefferson to Alexander Hamilton to Benjamin Franklin and the others, James Madison lesser known. I wouldn't say he's underrated, but not as well known, not as much a part of folklore, partly having to do with the fact that he was a, I don't want to say he was a retiring individual. Um, uh, you don't, you don't uh, command the Constitutional Convention or serve two terms as president if you're a shrinking violet, but he's our appreciation of James Madison is really his as his architecture of the American system of government. It was really, he's called the father of the Constitution for a good reason. And of course, Madison's influence um, endures to this very moment, especially here in Washington, where our tripartite form of government and um, much of the culture of American government is very much what Madison designed in the Constitution, and which he and Hamilton and John Jay, of course, famously advertised in the Federalist Papers. Lynn Cheney brings this all to life uh, very interestingly, and of course Patrick Allett gives us a great uh, introduction to the whole subject. There's always an essay of, of interest in and of itself. That's followed by a review of a book called The Gardens of the British Working Class by Margaret Willis, published by Yale University Press. The review is by Amy Henderson. When we tend to think of English gardens, and I I think a lot of us are gardeners, I'm a sort of would-be gardener myself, but when we think of gardens in England, we 
well, I should say when we think of gardens, we tend to think of England. And then when we think of English gardens, we tend to think of the formal gardens, the rather elaborate productions that you find at the stately homes or the Sissinghurst Castle, uh, uh, the Nicholson's famous project in Kent, which American pilgrims now go to visit on a routine basis. But the fact is that, that of course, the vast majority of gardeners in England aren't uh, don't own um, uh, splendid uh, country seats and are, in fact, uh, humble folk um, who garden partly out of habit, partly out of aesthetic uh, appreciation, and partly out of out of uh, necessity, um, uh, probably not fully appreciated. I don't know what to get was duplicated here, but gardens were a major source. Backyard gardens were a major source of food for a lot of the British during World War II, especially when things like vegetables were in such short supply. But a very charming book and a very charming essay by Amy Henderson, which is followed by a review by uh, Peter Lopatin of Simon Schama's new book, called The Story of the Jews, which is a, a history of the Jews um, from earliest origins down to 1492, which is to say the dawn of the modern era. And um, it's a very interesting piece. It's, it's a somewhat quirky book. It's, it's based to some degree on, on Simon Schama's, shall we say, singular vision of, of the subject. But it it's a, an interesting exploration of the Jews, both as a as a people and as a people of an idea, a people of the word, is what I call the piece, and how um, their existence as a people has waxed and waned and waxed over the centuries, has endured and, of course, has flourished in in differing circumstances. Um, uh, interesting book, I th I. Th think and and in any case an interesting introduction to the to the subject um, on a somewhat lighter note that's followed by Edward Short's review of two books one um, the virgin's baby the battle of the Antill succession by Bevis Hillier and another book called outrageous fortune growing up at Leeds Castle by Anthony Russell these are two very British books Bevis Hillier is a a British writer of my acquaintance. He's, among other things, the author of this standard official authorized three-volume Life of Sir John Betjeman, the, the former, the late poet laureate. But he's written a, a, a wonderfully entertaining book about one of those um, legal cases that, that takes on a, a separate uh, and enduring existence. And this was a case that began in the 1920s with the birth of a of a young uh, son to a a, a noble um, couple, and the husband ultimately sued the wife for divorce, claiming that uh, the son wasn't really his son, and that called into question the son's. Uh, 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 eligibility to succeed his father as Baron Amtill. Of course, obviously, in, in England, you can't succeed to a, a, uh, a title, an earldom or viscountcy or, or whatever, um, if you're not the legitimate heir. And um, it was uh, the father's argument that he wasn't, but the case went to court. It was, of course, 
people tend to think that that newspapers uh, have only started covering sensational trials and uh, uh, chronicling the complicated lives of the rich and famous very recently that's not true this was lavishly covered in the in the uh, in, in the press at the time in the 1920s and ultimately actually um, even though the, the the mother and son suffered reverses initially they they did prevail in the long run and the son did ultimately succeed to the title um, outrageous fortune is the autobiography of a man called Anthony Russell, who's a, a, a sort of a child of the swinging 60s, and, uh, but who grew up at Leeds Castle and is a descendant of the protagonists in the Bevis Hillier book. Um, his book is to some degree what often happens to noble or moneyed families. They They don't exactly fall on hard times, but they they tend to fall apart for various um, social and cultural or even moral reasons. And Anthony Russell's account of his, shall we say, colorful upbringing as a as a member of the Antill family is 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 uh, uh, worth reading. Anyway, Edward Short summarizes it in a very entertaining way. That is followed by a wonderful book for the natural historians among you called The Galapagos, A Natural History by Henry Nichols, which is published by Basic Books. The reviewer is Christoph Ermscher, who writes for me occasionally on natural history subjects. The Galapagos, of course, is a famous archipelago of islands um, just off the western coast of South America, which was famously visited um, uh, in the early 19th century by HMS Beagle, on whom, of course, uh, on board, of course, the the resident um, biologist or scientist or natural historian, however you want to describe him, was, of course, the young Charles Darwin. And it was, in fact, Darwin's observations of the Galapagos which prompted him to start thinking about the origin of species, which, of course, led to his working out of the theory of evolution. Um, but the Galapagos, of course, even today is of interest because the 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 animal life that's there is is varied and um, largely unspoiled by predators or humans. It, and as a consequence, um, human beings visit the Galapagos, but to some degree in controlled numbers in order to keep its kind of um, Eden-like atmosphere uh, intact. But it but Christoph Ermscher gives us a very very interesting scientific discussion, of course, in entirely accessible terms, about what makes the Galapagos uh, unique and what Darwin saw there and what he um, did with what he saw. That is followed by a piece by Colin Fleming about a new uh, brief life of, of the composer Mozart by Paul Johnson called Mozart a Life from Viking Press. Paul Johnson, of course, is the um, British journalist and author who, um, at the age of 90, is still churning out books. He, he, he has simultaneously just come out with a, a biography of um, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower. But his life of Mozart is, um, it's a very brief life, but what's fun about it is that it not only tells the Mozart story, but does two things. It tries to give um, a fairly comprehensive appreciation of Mozart's music 
why we like it, what we like about it, um, but also explode some of the myths of Mozart's life. Um, there's a certain romance and tragedy about Mozart's existence that has become folklore and to some degree was enshrined in the movie, uh, play and movie Amadeus. And Paul Johnson's argument is that Amadeus is more fiction than fact and that Mozart's life and career was uh, a little more um, nuanced and successful than than we like to think. I mean, he 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 obviously died in relative poverty, but but not quite in the the squalor and desperation that we tend to think. But of course, none of that is quite as interesting as as what Mozart did. And Paul Johnson offers a very intelligent discussion of that which Colin Fleming offers a very interesting reaction to. Similarly, we have a new um, uh, translation of Beowulf by, of all people, J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, the book is called Beowulf, a Translation and Commentary, translated by J.R.R. Tolkien and edited by his son, Christopher Tolkien. This is from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Gerald Rossello, who is the editor of University Bookman, has reviewed this for me. What's interesting, of course, is that Tolkien's uh, translation, which his son has edited because it was it was not fully not quite completed to Tolkien's satisfaction in his lifetime. Um, but what's interesting, of course, is that that Beowulf, which is the first major work in what we can regard as the the uh, canon of British literature, even though it's not in the any form of English that we would recognize. Nevertheless, um, the uh, world of Beowulf is very much the world that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien himself then uh, 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 reproduced in The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and the other Tolkien books. Um, Gerald Rosella talks to some degree about the extent to which Beowulf must have influenced Tolkien's invention of Middle Earth and, the, and its inhabitants, but it's a charming essay, and um, as one who uh, actually had to struggle through the um, uh, certain swatches of Beowulf in the original uh, Old English, um, I look forward to taking a look at the Tolkien translation. That is followed by a, a review by Harvey Clare of a book from Basic Books, um, entitled A Very Principled Boy, The Life of Duncan Lee, Red Spy and Cold Warrior by Mark Bradley. And the review is, I think as I mentioned, by Harvey Clare. Harvey Clare, of course, is another historian at Emory, but, but best known for his work on the Cold War and his, his, his work especially with uh, John Roll Haynes in publishing the uh, uh, what we've learned from the uh, Venona uh, uh, documents from the Soviet archives, um, which have given us tremendous insights into Soviet espionage and what was going on between uh, the KGB and Moscow and its agents here in the United States. Um, and Harvey Clare's review is of a book about a man called uh, Duncan Lee, who in many ways falls into the tends to fall into the category of the gentleman spies of that era. The, in England, you had, of course, Kim Philby and Guy Burgess and Donald McLean, the sort of um, um, 
upper crust, uh, Oxbridge educated um, uh, traders and spies. We had our own equivalent here, of course, with Alger Hiss and others, and one of whom was this man, uh, Duncan Lee, who was a uh, well-born American who was recruited in the um, 30s, uh, went to Yale and so on, and then went to England on a on a Rhodes Scholarship, and it was there he was recruited by the Soviets and continued working for them until the late 1940s when he, uh, and then of course during World War II he was with OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which was kind of the precursor to the CIA, and there he was, uh, a Soviet agent, uh, smack in the middle. He, he later came to see the error of his ways and um, to some degree recanted, but he ended up, um, actually he never really paid any kind of specific price for his espionage. Um, he ultimately ended up as a businessman in Toronto. But it's an interesting book because it talks about the milieu of these rather uh, genteel Americans who, for various reasons, found themselves attracted to Stalin's Russia and were willing to sell out their own country on behalf of the workers' paradise. And Harvey Clare has uh, describes this all very well. That is followed by a review of a, a book called The Most Dangerous Man in America. And the subtitle is The Making of Douglas MacArthur by Mark Perry. This is also from Basic Books. The reviewer is Mitchell Yokelson, who is, in fact, um, a, a historian and also a, the author of a of a brief life of General MacArthur, which I happen to think is probably the best single volume life of Douglas MacArthur. I haven't read Mark Perry's book, the one that under review here, but um, Mitchell thinks that it's a um, perfectly fair and uh, informative review of a of a figure who loomed much larger in the American imagination a generation ago than he does here, but an endlessly fascinating character. Uh, Douglas MacArthur was, of course, a distinguished army officer and in many ways very successful general, although ultimately um, uh, not so successful in Korea, but a, a curious mixture of of extreme vanity bordering on paranoia uh, with mixed with a kind of ost what we might call a kind of ostentatious humility, but also a real uh, genius for leadership. Um, uh, one of those people who was uh, effortlessly able to inspire people um, and who was also a very brilliant um, military tactician and strategist. And of course it was MacArthur, who was endlessly at war with the Navy during World War II over the, what um, strategy the United States should pursue in the Pacific, and MacArthur being MacArthur, of course, thought that the war against Japan had uh, should enjoy priority over the war in Europe against Hitler. But it's an endlessly fascinating story, and Mitchell Yokelson um, describes both the general in, in very skillful uh, nutshell fashion, but also makes this book sound worth worth reading, followed by a, a, a nice essay by James Seaton uh, in the form of a review by uh, Paul Sorrentino from 
Belknap Press, the Harvard imprint, entitled Stephen Crane, A Life of Fire. Stephen Crane is, of course, um, a pioneer American novelist um, of interest for various reasons. One is he was in that um, brief flowering of, of realist fiction uh, between the Civil War and the 1920s, um, along with Frank Norris and, and others. Crane was also um, uh, had tuberculosis and died prematurely, died at the age of 29, but not before writing one of the really great minor classics, some would say major classics of American literature, The Red Badge of Courage, which has always fascinated um, literary historians because it's it's often considered to be the most persuasive and moving account of what it was like to be and to actually participate as a private soldier during the American Civil War. And of course, um, Crane had no first-hand knowledge of that, being born in 1871. Um, but he was, like many a, many a writer of genius, a man of, of immensely complicated uh, parts, um, uh, highly successful, also highly tortured, and uh, like, like many novelists, his, his, the story of his life is almost as interesting as the stories he created, and uh, James Seaton does, does, uh, 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 does a very good job of of conveying to us both what Crane was like and what his work represents. A uh, amusing review follows that by uh, Abby Schachter of a book from IWF Press, IWF being the Independent Women's Forum. It's a book by a woman called Julie Gunlock, and it's entitled From Cupcakes to Chemicals, How the Culture of Alarmism Makes Us Afraid of Everything and How to Fight Back. Uh, Julie Gun Gunlock is the, uh, a woman who has decided that um, children are rather severely overprotected in our society, and I can't say I disagree with her about that, and has sort of started a movement to encourage parents to uh, let their children out the back door and play outside and do other things that, that they're often protected from. And she's written a very I mean, it's an amusing, but it's also a, a, a serious book about how just about everything in daily life um, we, we, we tend to emphasize as a society, and especially in the media, the, the perils and the dangers inherent in, in food and in physical activities and in taking a ride on this and in wearing that. And, of course, ultimately, if you take all that to its logical conclusion, we're all kind of paralyzed. And... There's a kind of reaction to that now, I think, spearheaded by people like Julie Gunlock, that that um, you know life does come with certain risks, but the risks in many cases are are really minimal, and um, in in some cases, of course, uh, alar and apples and things like that, uh, practically non-existent, if not fictional. So Abby Schachter has written a very interesting and, if I may say, amusing review. Of the book, but it's one of those one of those issues that's amusing, but but not um, but not not funny in the long run. It's a it's a serious subject, so I commend it, both the review and the book to you. My final piece, um, I always try to for my for my uh, um, murder mystery friends, I try to uh, include 
um, the occasional uh, detective fiction that they might find of interest. And John Breen, who writes about this for me uh, regularly, um, has found something a little bit unusual, which is to say a an Italian writer um, called Andrea Camilleri, now almost 90 years old, but he's been churning out police procedurals about a detective in Sicily called Inspector Montalbano, and there are now a series of Inspector Montalbano um, crime novels, which, which John Breen admires greatly. Of course, obviously, they appear here in translation. What might be of interest is that about 20 years ago, Italian television started uh, dramatizing the, the uh, uh, Inspector Montalbano stories, and so there is now a library of DVDs, I guess. You can watch Inspector Montalbano, but John Breen makes the case that for various reasons, um, partly the way the mysteries are crafted and partly the exotic setting that 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 um, uh, Camilleri's novels are well worth uh, taking a look at, and of course are now published in the United States. So, um, for those of you looking for ge for genuine beach reading, um, uh, we offer Inspector Montalbano by way of the novels of Andrea Camilleri. Anyway, that's the summer reading issue for this summer. I hope I hope I've touched as many bases as was humanly possible, and I hope that you uh, take some of the advice proffered here and are happy about it. And I look forward to talking to you at our next podcast. Thanks a lot.